morning, everyone. We're so glad you're with us. Hope you had a wonderful, restful weekend. I'm so happy to have Victor Blackwell by and my I'm side. And I'm happy to be here. Good morning. Good morning to you. We have a lot of news to get to. Let's get started with five things to know for this Monday, August 7th. This breaking overnight, at least three people are dead this morning after two helicopters collided midair while fighting a fire in California. Details from the scene still coming in at this hour. Also breaking overnight, Ukraine says it has arrested a woman in connection with the plot to assassinate President Zelensky. She was allegedly preparing an airstrike on the southern port region of Mykolaiv while Zelensky visited. 11 hours and counting, that's how much time Donald Trump has left to respond to the special counsel's legal filing. At the heart of it, what Trump and his legal team can and cannot do with the evidence shared throughout the January 6th case. Today also marks one of the most significant changes in blood banking history. The Red Cross now dropping those blanket restrictions based on sexual orientation, clearing the way for more gay men to donate blood. And Barbie the billionaire just crossed <laughs> the $1 billion threshold, an historic feat for a solo female director. CNN This Morning starts right now. We're going to get to all of that shortly, but this first breaking overnight, at least three people have died after two helicopters collided. This happened in Southern California. Cal Fire officials say the two aircraft were responding to a wildfire in Riverside County, just east of Los Angeles. One of the choppers landed safely. The other did not. Unfortunately, the second helicopter crashed and tragically all three members perished, uh, which included one Cal Fire division chief one CAL FIRE FIRE CAPTAIN, AND ONE CONTRACT PILOT. REMINDER OF JUST HOW DANGEROUS THAT JOB IS AND WHAT HEROES THEY ARE. THE CRASH MARKS THE FIRST DEATHS OF THIS YEAR'S FIREFIGHTING SEASON. WE ARE EXPECTING AN UPDATE A LITTLE BIT LATER THIS MORNING WITH MORE DETAILS. THIS MORNING, DONALD TRUMP IS JUST HOURS AWAY FROM A CRITICAL LEGAL DEADLINE IN THE 2020 ELECTION INTERFERENCE CASE. A FEDERAL JUDGE HAS ORDERED HIM TO RESPOND TO SPECIAL COUNSEL JACK SMITH'S REQUEST FOR A PROTECTIVE ORDER BY 5 P.M. Smith is trying to block Trump from disclosing evidence and making public comments that could intimidate witnesses. Also keeping a close eye on Fulton County, Georgia. Take a look there. That is where Trump is facing another potential indictment for trying to overturn the election. Streets around the courthouse being shut down this morning as the grand jury considers charges. Let's bring in CNN Justice Correspondent Jessica Schneider with more. Good morning, Jess. Let's start on what Victor was talking about and the Trump team's legal maneuvers here are trying to oppose the protective order. What happens? Yeah, you know, Poppy and Victor, every step of this case is shaping up to be a fight. Trump's attorney uh, flooded the airwaves over the weekend, vowing to fight that protective order proposed by the special counsel. Trump's team, as you said, must officially file its opposition later today. And they've also previewed their coming claims that they want this case moved out of Washington, D.C. Former President Donald Trump and his legal team going on offense this weekend after Trump pleaded not guilty to four charges alleging that he tried to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. The point is that we will not agree to keeping information that's not, that's not sensitive from the press. 
Trump's lawyer says his legal team plans to oppose a protective order requested by prosecutors that would put some restrictions on what Trump and his team can do with evidence shared with them. Federal prosecutors arguing limits need to be imposed on Trump, citing his previous public statements about witnesses, judges and lawyers in the case. And in the filing attached a truth social post of Trump's where he warns, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. Trump rebuking the concerns of federal prosecutors, continuing to lash out on social media at the case and the judge over the weekend, claiming he cannot get a fair trial in Washington, D.C. Trump writes that he plans to ask Judge Tanya Chutkin, who is presiding over the case, to recuse herself, and further claiming he will also request a change of venue for the trial. One of Trump's rivals for the Republican nomination for president disagrees. I believe jurors can be fair. I believe in the American people, and I believe in the fact that jurors will listen fairly and impartially. Despite his legal troubles mounting, Trump hit the campaign trail this weekend visiting South Carolina, where he again criticized his latest indictment and special counsel Jack Smith. He's a deranged human being. You take a look at that face, you say, that guy is a sick man. There's something wrong with him. A Trump campaign advisor tells CNN Trump has no plans to change his rhetoric. The former president also took aim at his former vice president, Mike Pence, disputing the claims in the indictment that he pressured him to reject the election results. Trump's attorney, John Loro, says that Trump was merely asking the vice president to act. What President Trump did not do is direct Vice President Pence to do anything. He asked him in an aspirational way. Asking is covered by the First Amendment. Pence confirming the claims in the indictment and says he has no plans to testify, but will, quote, comply with the law. Frankly, the day before January 6th, if memory serves, they they came back, as lawyers did, and said, we want you to reject votes outright. This, this, they were asking me to overturn the election. I had no right to overturn the election. Uh, I know we did our duty that day. So we are expecting a flurry of court fights, court filings before the next court date in this 2020 election case. That next court date is August 28th. Now, as for Trump's claims that he'll try to get this case moved out of D.C., Poppy and Victor, about three dozen January 6th defendants have already tried to move venue and no judge, even those appointed by Donald Trump, have ever agreed. So it will be a steep legal fight for the former president if he does try to get the judge recused or venue moved. Guys? Interesting. One of his lawyers said last week, West Virginia yeah. as a suggestion. Wonder why. <laughs> All right, let's bring in now CNN senior legal analyst and former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Ellie Honig, and CNN senior political analyst and anchor John Avlon. Gentlemen, welcome to the table. Ellie, let me start with you with the deadline straight ahead. Uh, the decision uh, or the response requested from the Trump attorneys on this request from the special counsel to not allow Trump to keep copies of it. Would it be rare, this is his case, uh, to keep him from holding any of the, the evidence that's handed over to attorneys? It is fairly rare to have a, what we call a protective order put into any case. Now, to be clear, protective order governs what Donald Trump can do and say publicly about the evidence that he receives. It does not limit in any way his ability to use evidence in his own defense at trial. But here what's happened is the special counsel has said, in light of things Donald Trump has said, including some of the social media posts Jessica just talked about, there need to be restrictions on what he can do and say publicly about this evidence. And ordinarily, if you have a situation like this, which is fairly rare, you get together 
defense and prosecution. You work it out. The judges urge them to do that. They're not going to do that, I'll predict. And so Donald Trump's team is going to put in a brief today by 5 p.m. saying we should not be restricted in any way. We have free speech rights. You do have a right to criticize your prosecutor. You do have a right to criticize the judge. But there's a line that can be crossed when you get into tampering. And so I predict, I believe Donald Trump's going to say there should be no restrictions. And then the judge will have to decide how much restriction do I put on this? It's really interesting what Bill Barr has been saying in the last few weeks. First of all, his fascinating interview with Caitlin, and then over the weekend, him saying he thinks this is a legitimate case and that he, of course, he'd be willing to testify in it, both notable things. But John Avalon, you make the point that, you know, more Republican presidential candidates are speaking out in a more candid way, although maybe it's just a little word choice change for DeSantis, but that it it shows more courage, you believe, to say Uh, what's true. I think you're starting to see the aperture open for Republican candidates to feel free to speak frankly about Donald Trump and his attempts to overturn the election. Mike Pence had been muted previously. He's not anymore. I think he understands that his best chance at getting a nomination on the debate stage is by speaking candidly and forcefully about Trump's request for him to overturn the election. Uh, Ron DeSantis, I think there's some donor pressure for him to moderate, Mm -hmm. but him saying that, look, the election wasn't stolen. He'd sort of tiptoed around that. The problem in the Republican field has been tiptoeing around Donald Trump Also, he said unsustainable, that what Trump's doing is unsustainable. Yeah, which has the added advantage of being true. Uh, But but, (laughs) But you're finally starting to see uh, people have the courage of their convictions a little bit on the margins because he's been very successful at intimidating people uh, into not calling out what is, you know, frankly, something if you're a constitutional conservative, uh, this should be easy to call out, not a tough call. So uh, we saw on uh, social media, Donald Trump says that he's going to call for a change of venue. You mentioned that already. D.C. to West Virginia, potentially, but also for the judge, Judge Chutkin, to recuse herself here. Um, What do you think about that? I mean, bombast aside, if you look at the convictions or the sentencing of the January 6th defendants, an attorney for the president would say, we'd like a different uh, judge, but is there any case for it? Both of these motions are DOA. They have no chance of succeeding. He's, of course, going to try to get out of D.C. And by the way, Victor, you raised, I wonder why. He got five, Donald Trump got 5.4% of the vote in D.C., 68% of the vote in West Virginia. It is very difficult to get a case moved venue-wise. DOJ can agree. They're not going to agree. Otherwise, you have to show a judge you cannot get a fair trial in the venue you've been charged. But we have procedures for that. We have jury selection procedures. We have judges will instruct jurors here to put aside your political beliefs, decide on, on the facts. Regarding this judge, I think we have to set the record straight here. She's an Obama nominee. That make, does not make her inherently biased against Donald Trump, any more than the fact that Judge Cannon, Mm -hmm. on the other case in Florida, is biased in his favor because she's a Trump nominee. She was approved, Judge Chutkin, 95 to 0 in the U.S. Senate. She's a former public defender. She understands the rights of a criminal defendant in federal court. And yes, Victor, you're right. She has handed out sentences that have been tough on January 6th offenders. That does not mean she's incapable of handling this case. In my view, both of these judges, I think, are, are deserving of respect and not conflicted out. I'm super interested by what uh, John Loro, Trump's lawyer, said on CBS Face the Nation about Mike Pence and how they view him as critical to their case, not against their case, to their case. Here it is. 
Mike Pence will be one of our best witnesses at trial. Based on what Vice President Pence will say, the government will never be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that President Trump had corrupt or criminal intent. And that's what this case well, is about. Well, what Mike Pence has said all this week is that what President Trump did was wrong, and he knew uh, it was wrong, and he was pressing him to do something uh, that was wrong. It was also pretty clear. He never said it was criminal. He said it was wrong. Never said it was criminal. So that was on ABC. He also said on CBS, Ellie, that Mike Pence will be, quote, the best witness for them. How do you see that? Uh, I'm you, having, I'm, I'm having a that? hard time seeing that. But look, get, get ready for this. I mean, this is what will happen in the run up to trial and at trial. You'll hear one witness and one side will say, look how great this is for us. The other side will say, look how great it is for us. I mean, Mike Pence strikes me based on what we know is a very powerful prosecution witness. Right. Mm -hmm. We know from the indictment and they refer in the indictment to certain things that Mike Pence has already told them about his conversations with Trump, including the famous or infamous quote, you're too honest, is what Trump said to him when he resisted. So I like Mike Pence if I'm a prosecutor. They may have some idea how they're going to cross-examine his as a defendant, but he didn't explain it in that clip, and I don't see it. In what world is Mike Pence a good defense witness? <laughs> uh, in a reality distortion-filled world. Okay. This is bluster. Uh, th this, this is bluster. Um, Mike Pence made it very clear. I mean, you know, he, this was, we know this was a full court press by Donald Trump. This wasn't polite asking, hey, would you mind overturning the election for me? Uh, this was really a, you know, you've got to do this and a clear pattern of it. So, look, I think we've seen from Trump and his lawyers very often a pattern of bluster trying to, you know, replicate, I think, the, the, the candidate's attitudes. And I think this falls under that category. All right. Ellie, John, thank you. Breaking this morning, Ukraine Security Service says it foiled a plot to assassinate President Volodymyr Zelensky, what we're learning about the woman arrested. And Russian and Chinese warships spotted near Alaska. How the U.S. military responded. Breaking overnight, the Ukrainian Security Service says it has detained a Russian woman in connection to a plot to assassinate President Zelensky. CNN's Nick Peyton Walsh is live in southern Ukraine. Uh, Nick, what are you learning about this plot and the detention? Yeah, look, I mean, little is known, particularly how far advanced this was. But what Ukrainian security services are saying is they've detained a Russian informant who appears to have been trying to collect information about the visits of Vladimir Zelensky, Ukraine's president, to Mykolaiv, that key port city in the south in recent weeks. Now, some of the messages that they've released that they say uh, are between her and the people she was corresponding with suggest perhaps she could take pictures, provide a bit more information about the time and place of this visit. She has said she's not named, and it's not clear if she's Russian or just a Russian informant. She's said to be a military store uh, worker, someone who worked essentially in a, uh, an outdoors shop in a Charkiv, that's a peninsula right down um, towards Crimea on the southern coast. So a key reminder here, I think, from the Ukrainian security services that there is constantly a threat against Volodymyr Zelensky's life. We know he takes inordinate precautions in trying to keep himself in Kiev, but still at the same time, too, does go to a lot of frontline destinations over the past months to, uh, to corral troops in those places. And the Ukrainian security services, too, very active in the media over the past week or so, claiming responsibility for the attacks on the cargo ship carrying oil, the assault amphibious ship on the port of Novorossiysk, and indeed to the bridge to Crimea as well. Overnight, though, Victor, we've been hearing of yet more strikes inside of Ukraine. One dead in Kherson from shelling, uh, but also two suggestions from Russian officials that Ukrainian drones have tried to get up towards Moscow as well. This nightly exchange between both sides persisting, certainly, and a sign, I think, of the growing 
tension and uh, impact on civilian life here in Ukraine as the southern counteroffensive picks up pace. Victor? Nick Payton Walls for us in southern Ukraine. Thank you. The U.S. military is deploying four of its naval destroyers to monitor 11 Russian and Chinese ships that are, quote, patrolling in the waters near Alaska. Alaskan lawmakers say those vessels were operating last week near the Aleutian Islands, but a Chinese official says they were just conducting joint maritime patrols in the relevant waters off the Pacific. Natasha Bertrand is tracking it all live from the nation's capital, from Washington. Um, and wh- how significant is this? Is this a threat or is this normal? Well, U.S. Northern Command, they are kind of downplaying this. They are saying that they monitored the situation. They sent planes and ships to track the movements of these uh, Russian and Chinese vessels, and that ultimately they did not pose a threat to the U.S. or Canada, and those vessels stayed in international waters. But the U.S. senators from Alaska, uh, Republican Senator Dan Sullivan and Lisa Murkowski, they are issuing statements that are a bit more uh, alarmist. They say that they believe that this shows that Vladimir Putin and uh, Xi Jinping, the presidents of China and Russia, that they are that they believe that they are, uh, you know, able to operate essentially with impunity in the area. And they say that they have received several classified briefings about the transit of these vessels near the Aleutian Islands over the last several days. And I just want to read you a statement from a Republican Senator, Senator Dan Sullivan, who said that the incursion by these 11 Chinese and Russian warships that we're operating together off the coast of Alaska is yet another reminder that we have entered a new era of authoritarian aggression led by the dictators in Beijing and Moscow. Now, notably, as you mentioned, Poppy, the Chinese embassy did uh, send a statement to CNN, and they acknowledged that there were joint naval patrols being carried out in the northern Pacific. Uh, and they said, though, that these were not targeted at any third party and that they did not have anything to do, these patrols, with the current situation, of course, of tensions uh, between the U.S., China and Russia. Um, but ultimately, look, these uh, vessels did stay in international waters. The U.S. sent some Navy destroyers to monitor them. Uh, and, and ultimately, you know, they're reaffirming the U.S.'s, the ability of these ships to operate freely in international waters, just as the U.S. Uh, frequently does uh, off the coast of Russia and China. Yeah. Natasha, thank you for the update. A tearful end for the U.S. women's national soccer team and one of its biggest stars after being knocked out of the World Cup. Plus this. Biles is back. Simone Biles has won her first competitive gymnastics event after a two-year break. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Just minutes ago, England took out Nigeria in the round of 16 of the Women's World Cup in a second consecutive day of games decided by penalty kicks. The English team will head to the quarterfinals and to play the winner of the match between Colombia and Jamaica. Uh, That match happening tomorrow night at 4 a.m. Also, this. Harting. Off there. Did it go in? Waiting on a signal. Wow. Sweden wins. A devastating loss, knocking the U.S. women's national soccer team out of the World Cup. Sweden beat the Americans in the dramatic 5-4 shootout yesterday. That final penalty kick crossing the goal line by just millimeters. The U.S. team came into the tournament as a favorite 
taking aim at their third World Cup title in a row and their fourth overall after the match. Their coach praised them for putting up a good fight. Very proud of them and devastated for them that they, you know, we have to go out in the way we the, the way we did. I thought that we deserved a lot more. We deserve to win this game. Let's bring in Judy Foudy. She's a two-time FIFA Women's World Cup champion, two-time Olympic gold medalist, and TNT soccer analyst. Julie, I am sorry. It must be so painful, especially for you, having had all the experiences you had for this team. You know, the the, the, the coach talked about saying they deserve to win this game. Did they? They did finally play a better game. So that that uh, brought some reassurance. Um, but, you know, overall, this just wasn't the performance the United States had hoped for. I mean, we saw in four games, only four goals scored by the United States. They really struggled all tournament. This performance against Sweden in this round of 16 game definitely was a better game. But still, they, they, they couldn't score. They couldn't finish their penalty kicks in the end. Um, and it's what's really plagued this United States all tournament is, uh, is this inability to have any cohesion, to come together at the right times and ultimately to score goals. And so yeah. in the end, couldn't score the penalty kicks either. Julie, I can't say that I've always been the biggest soccer fan, but you really didn't have to be to be engrossed in this match. I mean, when it came down to penalty kicks and the, the, the winning kick is just over the line by a couple of millimeters, it's hard stopping. I, I wondered, you got into a bit of this, is this structural for the team or just a, a run of a few bad performances? Do they need to make some big changes? It, it yeah, it's a great question. Um, it requires us to sit down over dinner and have a glass of wine, probably, uh, to discuss. Um, because it, I, I do think that what we've seen in this tournament, and it's really encouraging, actually. For a long time, we kept saying the world is catching up to the United States. We've had incredible dominance, thanks in large part to Title IX. But what you're seeing now in this World Cup in particular, I mean, Nigeria just took England to penalty kicks um, and England had to win in that fifth penalty kick. The world has caught up. And you're seeing these teams, three out of the four African teams got through. Um, Jamaica got through. Colombia got through. So South America doing better. So you're seeing really a rise globally of the game. And so this is a situation where I think people expect the United States, because of all our past dominance, to continue to dominate and I just think that's unrealistic because the world is getting so much better which is a great thing because people are finally investing on the women's side mm -hmm. for soccer. Let's listen to Megan Rapinoe what she said. Yeah I thought we played really well. Um, I thought we played really well. I'm so happy for us that we went out like that um, playing the way that we did and you know having a ton of joy on the ball. Um, I mean, this is like a sick joke for me personally. I'm just like, this is dark comedy. I missed a penalty. Yes, but can you just talk to what they've stood for? I mean, I'll never f forget watching Megan Rapinoe get the Presidential Medal of Freedom. You know, all the visits of this team to the White House. What yeah. this team, yeah. a new iteration this year, but has meant and what she's meant. Yeah. And, and, and that's the thing. I mean, people say, oh, she, Megan Rapinoe missed that penalty kick and the team didn't perform that well. Um, 
But when you look at the entirety of just Megan Rapinoe's career and some of these players, Kelly O'Hara was another mm-hmm. one who clanged it off the post um, when she had a chance to win it as well. That was her fourth World Cup. I mean, these players have been fighting for equal pay, for yes. equity issues, and for so many people who don't have the platform or the microphone to do so. And so to judge them by this one moment, which is what you see often in social media and uh, in a very divisive country, sadly, is is unfair because they have brought so many good things to this game, to this sport and to so many women and young girls. Just giving them th- the opportunity to say, hey, I can I can make what um you know, a guy next to me is making and all these different silos. It's it's really been an inspiration on so many different levels. And so I think you need to judge them for the entirety of their career. And they're two time reigning World Cup champions. They've done a lot of fantastic things, yeah. as we know. Totally agree. Yeah. Julie, thank you. There's Thanks, always Julie. always the next Olympics. Yeah, the year out from Paris. There you go. All right. Got an opportunity to make some changes. New York City officials have relocated migrants camped out sleeping on the street outside the Roosevelt Hotel. But what's the long-term plan? New details next. Plus. Oh, there it goes, there it goes. Wow, that is video showing a home in Juneau, Alaska collapsing into a river. A glacial break has caused flooding in the area. Several structures and homes along the river have been destroyed. City officials in Juneau have issued an emergency declaration there. There it goes, there it goes. Well, this morning, a fire at a plastics manufacturing facility in New Mexico is under control. Thick black smoke, look at that, could be seen from miles Sunday in Albuquerque. Officials advise people in the area to stay indoors, keep their windows closed. Fire officials say flames also consumed a vehicle and expanded past the facility to outside vegetation. The crews were on the scene throughout the night trying to keep an eye on the situation. New York City officials have until Wednesday to submit a list of what they need from the state to help deal with the city's dire migrant housing crisis. According to the Legal Aid Society, a judge set the deadline in an emergency court conference on Friday. She also demanded the state must do more to help with the crisis. And this comes after last week, migrants slept on the street outside a temporary shelter, the Roosevelt Hotel in Midtown Manhattan. And that's where we find CNN's Polo Sandoval this morning. Polo, a rainy day out there. Um, What's the situation? Yeah. So, Victor, I just looked over my shoulder a few moments ago outside the Roosevelt Hotel, and no sign of that being the case yet again. However, we should mention that it was late last week that New York City Mayor Eric Adams closed out the week by warning that those scenes that we witnessed play out just last week at this very location could very much become quite common as the city's migrant shelter system continues to buckle under the pressure of rising numbers. And we should mention the city was eventually able to find shelter space for the individuals that were camped outside of the Roosevelt Hotel here that's now serving as the primary intake center. Uh, And also we know that at least two recreation centers in Brooklyn are now being added to the growing list of shelters that are being used by New York City. And there's still the question of whether or not the city will turn to Central Park and temporary facilities there to serve as shelter space, as the Adams administration maintains that all options remain on the table. And finally, Victor, we should note that this weekend marked one year since the arrival of the first migrant bus chartered by the administration of Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Uh, since then, we've seen about 10,500 asylum seekers arrive by those means. That is 
Sure, it's a fairly large number, but it's still just a fraction of the over 95,000 asylum seekers that have turned to the city for help. That's a number that continues to grow this morning, Victor, and which is precisely why the city continues to call for not just state, but also federal assistance amid, amid this uh, migrant crisis. Victor? Polo Sandoval for us there in Midtown Manhattan. Thank you. All right, let's talk about this. Back with us, CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig, also CNN senior uh, analyst and anchor John Avalon. Morning again to you guys. John, can you just, I mean, as someone who worked intimately with a mayor's office yep. for Rudy Giuliani, can you just speak to how you view this challenge, how the Adams administration is handling it, and the role and responsibility of the Biden White House here in federal government? This is fundamentally a federal problem. It is a federal failure, and it has been pushed on the city of New York, in part because of a right to shelter law we have, which says everyone deserves a place to stay. That's when you hear people say sanctuary cities? It, it, it's related to that, which is also a public health uh, uh, statute in, in its intention. Now, this new decision says the state's got to step up to help the city. But really, the federal government needs to do much more to, set, to, to step up for the state. And ultimately, it is a global problem. You've got a lot of dislocation, particularly in Latin America, but not only causing this flow of asylum seekers into the United States. So putting this all on the back of New York City and its taxpayers is a undue burden. And it's really a call to arms to actually deal with our border. However trollish the initial impulse was to ship migrants up here. I think it adds to the urgency that this is not a sustainable situation. The city is asking uh, the White House to push along these work permits uh, to allow people to work. What more legally can the city do, can the administration do, considering all of the realities that we're aware of? So John's exactly right. I mean, this is a federal responsibility and a federal problem first and foremost. And the city has every right to request federal aid. And, and really, even it's not even really the state level issue. I mean, Credit to Mayor Adams and Governor Hoko for trying to do what they can, but ultimately they don't have the resources, they don't have the expertise, they need to rely on the federal government. And the federal government needs to do a better job of coordinating here. They can't just say, well, these people are out there, you deal with them when they arrive. The federal government needs to take responsibility. And we also need to look at this sort of grandstanding where, you know, this ridiculous stunt of putting people on buses and shipping them from yes. state to state. There's responsibility there too. I will say the Biden administration has tried to enact tougher asylum rules and make it more difficult to come here and apply for asylum once you're here. The laws basically that they've proposed say you have to propose when you're on your way if you pass through another mm -hmm. country, but that's been put on hold by the federal courts, further complicating all this. This is clearly an issue where they need to get tougher. And also, I think President Biden needs to give a Latin America speech. We need more of a Latin America policy and understand that stabilizing that region is in all our interests. This as well. is what critics have pointed to, especially a lot of folks on it over the weekend, to the vice president, Kamala Harris, who was yes. put in charge, not of fixing the border crisis, but dealing with the root causes of what's happening there. Do you expect we'll hear her more out front on this? I think, now? look, the White House is pushing Kamala Harris a lot more out right now. And this is an area that was, was put like on her, her plate. This was her signature thing. This was a signature thing, which, by the way, is the single worst gift a vice president can get because it's such a difficult and tractable problem. But it does increase the urgency, I think, for Democrats in general, for the White House in particular, and Kamala Harris probably most of all, to take a clearer, tougher, more comprehensive line. Yeah, she traveled down to the uh, Northern Triangle country, said yeah. do not come. Yep. Of course, that That's did right. not work, of course. But if the, and you talked about the Greg Abbott uh, stunts of setting the buses up. If the goal was to not just practically alleviate some of the pressure from the border communities, but political, as we know, to exhaust the, uh, the cities like New York, did it work? I mean, you've now got the mayor of New York saying there's no more room for you. It, it I, I hate to say it worked. I mean, only in the crassest political sort of bottom line sense did it work and that they managed to take this burden and literally just ship it out, send it to the next state. I mean, 
that's contrary to every sort of ethical humanitarian instinct mm -hmm. and responsibility that any leader would have. But in the crass political sense of do we take our problem from our state and send it to some other state? I, I guess. Mm. Guys, thank you, right, John Alley. Appreciate it. Barbie has a billion. <laughs> the Barbie movie has just made box office history. The numbers next. And it's almost been a month since the Actors Union went on strike. Where do those talks stand? We'll be joined by Fran Drescher, actress and president of SAG-AFTRA. She'll join us live in studio in our 8 a.m. Eastern hour. Basically everything that men do in your world, women do in ours. The president's here. I am, you're welcome. Barbie is a doctor and a lawyer, and it's so much more than that. There are Kens too, there are many Kens. Barbie hits a billion, Greta Gerwig has become the first female to direct a movie that raked in more than a billion dollars at the box office. That is according to the film studio, Warner Brothers. Of course, it's owned by CNN's parent company, Warner Brothers Discovery. And it is a beautiful thing to see. CNN Business Correspondent Rahel Solomon is here. My favorite part of the movie yeah. is when they show the Supreme Court and it's all women because... Love to see it. Why not? Yeah, we're, we're far away from that, but great to see it in the movie. Lots of records for Barbie. She is a billion-dollar Barbie. So let's start with the fact that Greta Gerwig becomes the first woman to solo direct a movie to cross a billion dollars. A really significant moment for the industry. I spoke to a senior media analyst in the 5 o'clock hour, guys, who told me this is a, a watershed moment because it signals to the industry that not only is creative filmmaking good for the, or diverse filmmaking good for the creative process, it's also good for the bottom line. So that's certainly something too. Also breaking other records. And we can show you just sort of how Barbie compares with some of the highest grossing films of all time. Of course, you have Avatar up there, you have Avengers. That said, you can see that's closer to 2.9, but Barbie has reached some of these records in record time. So Warner Brothers uh, saying that it is the fastest movie to reach $400 million domestically. Fastest movie to reach $500 million internationally. So not only is Barbie uh, bringing in the big bucks. She is doing it in record time. And I should say, guys, that this comes at a time when we are really spending a lot more on services, activities, that sort of thing. Not on physical goods as much, but physical activities, live events. I mean, everybody has been to Beyonce this summer. Some of us. Or Taylor Swift. I mean, there's a lot no happening. No Beyonce, no Taylor Swift. What? I need to change. Have you, but you've been to the movies. My life. Because you've seen Barbie. I saw Barbie and Oppenheimer. Yeah, yeah, so people are going to the day. movies. <laughs> people are seeing Beyonce. People will soon be seeing Beyonce Saturday. or Taylor Swift. Yes. yes. So people are spending a lot to have experiences, and Barbie has really tapped into that. Because That's it's a been point. a while since we could have this summer of big blockbusters and, you know, 60,000 people in stadiums oh, together. So we're, we're happy to be together. Um, I have not seen Barbie yet. I will. But even from some of the Barbie cynics who I've, I know who have seen it, they like it. Yeah. They like how they treated, you know, the, the potential issue of Barbie's uh, yeah. body image uh, concerns. They love how it was dealt with. You know, it's a great point, Victor, because what industry analysts will say that Barbie did really well is they tapped into strategically those who loved Barbie, but those who hated Barbie, right? Because yes. there are, and I haven't seen it yet, I do want to see Barbie, but there are people who um, were not fans of some of Barbie's more problematic mm -hmm. past, the lack of inclusion, and, and on and on and on. But the writers did a really good job of sort of poking fun at its more problematic past. And yeah. so there's something here for everyone, whether you grew up loving Barbie or you felt like it wasn't inclusive, this seems to meet that. Totally. Right. They call that Robbie, Margot Robbie's character um, stereotypical Barbie. That's okay. what she calls herself to get right to that point. Yeah.
We need to get you a seat on this uh, Renaissance tour. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That. I need Taylor Swift. I need all these things in my life. And, guys, right. I, I dress for the occasion. Yes, yes you, you did. Very yes. good. Yes. Very good. Good to be with yes. you. Business correspondent, Barbie. <laughs> Ooh, right. You like that? Like See? That. You're welcome. <laughs> Well, this morning, the Red Cross dropping its restriction on blood donation based on a person's sexual orientation. It's a really significant change. The new guidelines ahead. And deadline day for Donald Trump's lawyers. Later today, they will have to respond to the Justice Department's proposal on how evidence in the 2020 election interference case is handled. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Starting today, the Red Cross has updated its guidance on who can donate blood. The new rules will allow more gay and bisexual people to donate. It comes three months after the FDA relaxed decades-old restrictions that officials said were aimed at protecting against the spread of HIV. CNN medical correspondent Meg Terrell is here. Such a big change, so important. A lot of people will say way too late. Mm -hmm. Long time coming. Other countries have been way ahead of us. They have been. And this has been an extremely long process. But the Red Cross starting this today is extremely significant because they account for 40% of the U.S. blood supply. Mm -hmm. And the Red Cross itself calls this one of the most significant changes to uh, the blood uh, banking history, the most significant changes in blood banking history. But as you mentioned, this has been a long time coming. I mean, it was 1985 when the lifetime ban on gay uh, male donors went into effect. And that was in the, you know, the height of fear around HIV and AIDS. It wasn't until 2015 that they even dialed that back to still a one-year period of required abstinence before donating. During COVID, they shortened that to three months. And then finally this year, they unified these rules for everybody. And so really what this does <clears throat> is it makes the questions based on individual risk uh, rather than sexual orientation. This brings the U.S. into step with other countries like the U.K. and Canada. Uh, and, and of course, this is uh, risk-based questions uh, not based on who somebody is. And there are still some exceptions, though, right? There are. And, uh, you know, the uh, LGBTQ plus community is still calling this, you know, stigmatizing. So uh, some of the exceptions are based on sexual history. There are also exceptions based on use of uh, antiviral drugs to prevent HIV infection because uh, the FDA says that that could lead to false negatives in terms of screening out HIV. Uh, but, you know, uh, GMHC, which is an HIV AIDS service organization, say that this still perpetuates stigma uh, that we've been seeing with these guidelines for, you know, 30 years. Yeah. Um, how much will it help in terms of supply? A few of my friends have gone, you know, to, to donate recently. And the, a big question is they need more supply. Is this expected to boost that a lot? They definitely do. Only 3% of age-eligible people actually donate every year. It surprised me it was so small. And so there is a really big hope that this could, you know, encourage more people and enable more people who want to be able to contribute to be able to. Yeah. All right. Meg Terrell, thank you. Thank you, guys. CNN This Morning continues right now. Morning, everyone. Victor Blackwell here with us. It is the top of the hour. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. We got a lot of news to get to on this Monday, August 7th. Ten hours to go. Trump's lawyers have until 5 p.m. this afternoon to respond to the special counsel's legal filing. At the heart of it, what Trump and his legal team can and cannot do with evidence shared throughout the case and throughout the January 6th case as a whole. Some Republicans' new line, quote, President Harris in emails, speeches, and interviews, Republican presidential candidates are increasingly suggesting that a vote for 80-year-old Biden would really actually be a vote for Vice President Kamala Harris. 
Happening overnight, at least three people have been killed after two helicopters collided while responding to a fire in Riverside County, California. One helicopter landed safely. All three people inside the other helicopter died. That included a Cal Fire Division chief and a fire captain, also a contract pilot. Also this, a 25-year-old in Florida has been found alive after being lost for two days at sea. The boater left St. Augustine Thursday night, was found around 12 miles offshore Saturday morning. The Coast Guard rescued him. They say no medical concerns were reported. And Biles is back. Simone Biles has won her first competitive event in two years. This was her first appearance since pulling out of several events at the Tokyo Olympics in 2021. This was when she was battling a bout of the twisties. She has qualified now for the U.S. National Championships. CNN This Morning starts right now. Here's where we begin this hour. This morning, Donald Trump just hours away from a crucial deadline in the 2020 election interference case. He's got until 5 o'clock afternoon to respond to uh, special counsel Jack Smith's request for a protective order. Smith is trying to block Trump from disclosing evidence and making public comments that could intimidate witnesses or undermine the case. Smith asked the judge to step in after Trump issued a vague threat on social media on Friday. He wrote in all caps, quote, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. This morning, we're also keeping a close watch on Fulton County, Georgia, where Trump is facing another potential indictment for trying to overturn the election. The streets around the courthouse are being shut down as the grand jury considers charges. A Trump's lawyer went on a media blitz and appeared on all five networks Sunday morning. He floated a new defense for Trump, allegedly pressuring Mike Pence and Georgia officials to overturn the election results. You're saying that asking is action. No, asking is aspirational. Asking is not action. It's core free speech. What President Trump did not do is direct Vice President Pence to do anything. And what he was asking for is the Secretary of State to act appropriately and find uh, these votes that were counted um, illegally. Uh, that was an aspir hold on one second. That was an aspirational ask. We, we would like a diverse venue, a diverse jury. Um, do you have any that, expectation uh, that, that will be granted? The, that reflects the, 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 the characteristics of the American people. Um, it's up to the judge. I think West Virginia would be an excellent venue to try this case. Speaking Very of the judge. DC in a much more diverse. One of the last and the ultimate requests that, that President Trump made was to pause the voting mm -hmm. for 10 days to allow the states to recertify or certify uh, or audit. And, and Mr. Pence rejected that as well. After that, there was a peaceful transition of power. So that's how the constitutional works. Okay. What happened now, on January 6th was not peaceful. Mike Pence will be one of our best witnesses at trial. Based on what Vice President Pence will say, the government will never be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that President Trump had corrupt or criminal intent. And that's what this case well, is about. Well, what Mike Pence has said all this week is that what President Trump did was wrong. He never said it was criminal. He said it was wrong. Never said it was criminal. With more on all of where Trump's legal cases stand, Ellie Honig back with us at the wall. Let's just walk through this most recent indictment about election efforts overturn the election, January 6th. Where is it now? Yeah, Pop, the third indictment has landed. We can take a moment and assess huh. where we are and what's happening soon because we're going to have more action today. This, of course, is DOJ Special Counsel Jack Smith's indictment of Donald Trump related 
to the attempt to overthrow the 2020 election. This is in federal court in Washington, D.C. Important to note, the focus here is not so much on the Capitol attack on January 6th as on the conspiracy in the weeks and months leading up to it, the conspiracy to overturn the legitimate results of the 2020 election using knowingly false claims of election fraud. Now, today, there will be litigation over a protective order. Prosecutors have said, Judge, you need to limit the way that Donald Trump uses the evidence and talks about it publicly. Donald Trump's team asked for a little more time to respond, and the judge said, nope, you got to respond today. Mm -hmm. Monday, we'll get that response later in the day. The next court appearance is going to be on August 28th. That's three weeks from now. And the key issue there is, will the judge set a trial date? I think she will. She has signaled that she's likely to. And I think it's likely to be before the election. But the question, of course, is, will that date mm -hmm. hold? That's where we are on the newest of the indictments. Okay. What about the others? Yeah, so three other cases. Let's remember, first of all, the other DOJ Jack Smith case yep. relating to classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Ten days ago, DOJ returned a superseding indictment, meaning a second version of the indictment, adding this individual, Carlos de Oliveira, as a third defendant and adding three new charges against Donald Trump. Now, the parties are going to court later this week on Thursday, mm -hmm. the 10th. And the big question will be, in light of the new indictment, does this trial date of May 2024 get pushed back? You know Donald Trump's team is going to argue, hey, we're charged with three new crimes here. We need more time. You know DOJ is going to push back against that. Let's not forget the first indictment that landed. This is the state-level prosecution by the Manhattan DA of Donald Trump relating to hush money payments for Stormy Daniels. They're in pretrial motions. They also have a trial date of March of 2024. And then the one that has not yet landed, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis. The grand jury's in. The barricades are up. This could come at any moment. At any point. Yeah. We know by September 1st it's going to come. Exactly. Uh, calendar, so the walk us The all-important calendar, right? You see all those dates. How are we going to get this all in in 2024? Let's circle a couple important dates. The election, of yeah. course, is here November 5th. We're not going to have a trial in October. There's going to be voting going on or September. No judge is going to have a trial that close to the election. Now, what's already taken? The Manhattan case, the hush money case, that is scheduled to start at the end of March. Yep. That is going to carry us through April. The Mar-a-Lago case is scheduled to start at the end of May. That is going to carry us through June and I think through July. So where is there a spot for, let's say, the January 6th case? I mean, Trump's team has said they believe it's going to take nine months to try it. I think that's wildly overrated, yep. overstated. But what if it's half that time? What if it's four months? There is no four-month gap. So one of these Unless is going to have to move. Unless this moves. Unless this was, and, and by the way, important point, Alvin Bragg, the DA, has more than signaled multiple times publicly that he's willing to come off this date or try to if necessary for the other. So this is all going to be fluid, but there's only so much time to try all these cases. Am I allowed to touch your magic? Go right I ahead. Like I was infringing a little <laughs> this bit This is there. actually a good visual representation <laughs> of what our 2024 is going to Oh, lovely. Like. Can't wait. Victor. Yeah. The absolute worst football player uh, that you just drew up. And I don't even know football. Joining us now, former Deputy Chief of Staff for Congressman Adam Kinzinger, Maura Gillespie. She also was the press advisor for House Speaker John Boehner and former Communications Director for Vice President Kamala Harris, Jamal Simmons. Uh, and Ellie will be back with us in just a moment. Let's start here, Maura, with this uh, claim from the former president that he won't get a fair trial in D.C., that he needs another judge. Do you think there's any credibility to either of those claims? It's an interesting take on the situation because obviously what happened on January 6th happened in D.C. and impacted not just the people in that vicinity, uh, but the city as a whole, but the country as a whole. So I think that uh, it's not surprising that he would make that argument, especially with what we're seeing ahead of the Georgia 
uh, indictment that's expected to come with the politicalization of things and having those those issues. But no, I'm I'm not. Do you think he can get a fair trial in D.C.? I think he'll get a fair trial in D.C. Jamal, this uh, request to have the judge recused, uh, Judge Tanya Chutkin, as I said, in the last hour, she has, uh, in several cases, sentenced these January 6th defendants to uh, sentences beyond what the prosecutors have requested. So if you look at this from a defense a d attorney perspective, you want a different judge. But is there anything here you think supports a request to recuse? Yeah, there's no constitutional right to being able to pick your courtroom, yeah. right? And, you know, and the place they want to change, the Trump team wants to change the venue to, is West Virginia, right? Which is a place that went for Donald Trump, like 70% of the voters, 69% of the voters went for Trump in West Virginia. So it's just not fair. Listen, Donald Trump should be giving the D.C. voters a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. I'm sure they will be fairer to him than he was to the Capitol Police officers who were getting beaten up by his forces out on January 6th. And he could have stopped that, and he did not. So I'm sure the D.C. Uh, voters will be, and D.C. jurors will be much fairer to Donald Trump than he was to them. I agree with Jamal. I think there's no basis to disqualify this judge or to move the case out of D.C. And, you know, Judge Shutkin has been really tough in her January 6th cases. We all love it. We keep using the quote where she said, presidents are not kings, plaintiff is not president. To me, the more telling quote from Judge Shutkin as to the seriousness with which she views this is she said in the sentencing of one of the January 6th rioters, this defendant did not go into the Capitol out of a sense of patriotic duty. He went in there for one man. That one man, of course, is now the person in front of her as a defendant. But there is not a conflict of interest here. The attacks on her are completely basis, baseless, and we should reject them. Listening to Trump's legal team, especially his lead counsel on this, John Lauro, they, he makes it sound like this is a slam dunk for us. I thought it was interesting because when he said to Dana yesterday, he cited Supreme Court precedent, basically saying, it's all clear here. Just, just look at what the Supreme Court did. I want to play that and get your reaction. The government alleges deceit or trickery, and all of this played out in the open. It's all free speech. There was a Supreme Court decision, Hammerschmidt, which is right on point, that says when you're exercising free speech, you're not engaging in a fraud on okay. the government. That's a case from 1924, Hammerschmidt versus the United States. What did it actually set as precedent? So what John Laura was doing there, it doesn't answer the question. It frames the question. The Hammerschmidt case actually involved a person who was urging people not to register for the selective service, for the draft. And the court there said, well, this is speech. This doesn't cross the line over into conduct. And that's exactly what the question will be in the Trump case. Was he just engaging in speech, in political speech, in dissent? Or was he crossing over the line into actual conduct. And I think prosecutors are going to point to the submission of the fake elector certificates, among other things, to say that there was, this was not conduct. just speech, there was act. Exactly. But that's the key question. You know, the, that case doesn't answer it. it. It frames what the question will be. The what about ism that we're seeing and hearing from the former president's defenders in Congress. Let's listen here to Senators Graham and Ernst and talk about it. When it comes to Donald Trump, there are no rules. Destroy him, destroy his family. When it comes to Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, they get away with almost everything. We have one system of justice if your last name is Trump, and you have another system of justice if your last name is Biden. So, of course, Iowans are really upset about this. They see this as a very political move. Trump and Hunter Biden, how are these two cases comparable at all? They're not comparable. But I think one thing that may seem like a foreign concept in politics is objectivity. And people need to be objectively looking at this. There's no comparison, period. But to pretend like the Hunter Biden situation isn't important 
would be doing a disservice and is what's probably triggering people on the right to be so frustrated because it's being largely looked over. Objectively, if you're looking at the situation, it, it looks a little off, right? It doesn't look great that the president's son got a sweetheart deal and then days later was being paraded around the White House at the state dinner with the DOJ head, Merrick Garland, also in attendance. So objectively, it doesn't look good. Again, there's no comparison to what these indictments are against President, former President Trump, but it just is important to point that out. Um, but I think that's what they're trying to do uh, in talking about those issues, but correlating them is, is a mistake. Uh, Ron, Richard and Poppy, just yeah, for go, the go. record, yeah. <laughs> just for the record, just to remind everybody where we were. Early in the administration, there were members of the Kushner family who were caught in China telling people they could get visas if they were willing to invest in the United States, that Donald Trump would give them visas. At the same time, Jared Kushner could not get a security clearance, while he, a permanent security clearance, while he was working in the White House, right? So if we want to talk about family members of the president who are doing things that impact the country, I think Jared Kushner and his family are, were much more of a problem for the president during the Trump administration than Hunter Biden is for Joe Biden, based on something that he did as a private well, citizen both of those. with a health problem. Scenarios you mean you need to you take a closer both. lens at how yeah. this looks to the American people sure. and what kind of parameters we have just it in general. It looks bad generally. That. And I think you can yeah. be objective in that and say, <laughs> it doesn't look great. But so, neither one of them compared to a former president of the United States agree. who's instigating a riot on the Capitol on January 6th that we all us. watched on television. <laughs> Stay with <laughs> us. We have much more to talk to you guys about. All right. Uh, uh, we also have this uh, coming up. Cameras are not allowed in federal court, but House Democrats and Trump's own attorney are pushing for his trial to be televised. Could the judge make an exception? Plus, Republican presidential candidates focusing their attacks on Vice President Kamala Harris. We have new reporting on the strategy ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I personally want the public to see what's going on in this country right now. I want the public to see what kind of prosecution is going so, on. So yes. And I want the public to see the evidence. That was John Lauro, Donald Trump's lawyer in the 2020 election subversion case. He tells CNN that he would absolutely like to see cameras in the courtroom once the former president goes on trial. Only problem here is cameras are not allowed in federal court, and there's no indication, at least yet, that the rule will change. Last week, House Democrats, they sent a letter to the judge who oversees the administration of federal courts urging for this case to be televised. This is part of the letter. If the public is to fully accept the outcome, it will be vitally important for it to witness uh, and directly as possible how the trials are conducted, the strength of the evidence, uh, adduced and the credibility of witnesses. And that's something our next guest echoed in a recent New York Times op-ed titled, Americans will believe the Trump verdict only if they can see it. Stephen Brill writes in part, the last thing our country and the world needs is for this trial to become the ultimate divisive spin game in which each side roots for its team online and on cable news networks as if cheering from the bleachers. And Stephen Brill is with us now. He's the CEO, co-CEO of NewsGuard, and the founder of Court TV. Good to have you this morning. Um, listen, I'm for transparency. Want to see everything everywhere. But let me scrutinize your position here. And let me start with the headline. When I, You write that Americans will believe the Trump verdict only if they can see it. What of the last eight years convinces you that people will believe it if they see it? Well, <clears throat> uh, what we've had uh, the last eight years is people getting their news 
uh, you know, from online, uh, from social media platforms. And what made me want to write this article was uh, that I've been living in that world uh, with NewsGuard, watching what people see and read online. And it's unreliable. It's not vetted. You don't know what the agenda is of the people who are making posts. You don't know who's paying them. You don't know what their credentials are. And uh, my experience with Court TV was exactly the opposite. A judge vets all the evidence. Everybody gets to see uh, the witnesses. They know who the witnesses are. And I think the most important thing about this trial is that after it's over, when people are debating the verdict, they are debating from the same set of facts. They're not debating based on what one of the lawyers might have said um, on uh, one of uh, the Sunday talk shows. They're not debating uh, based on what uh, the defendant or the government might have said in a tweet. Um, and that is crucially important that we all use the same set of facts, which is something that we've lost in this country and in the world with the advent of uh, the social media platforms. But Stephen, my pushback would be, and, and again, I think that having uh, the ability to watch the arguments and to see what is happening in the courtroom would add some uh, add facts to the conversation. But to suggest that people will be arguing the same set of facts, even when we have the Mueller report, we have the January 6th uh, commission, we have lists, we have these sources before, and still people don't argue the same set of facts. I is it your... Well, do you consider well, that it will not be a panacea? How many people, well, I don't think anything's a panacea in this world. How many people do you think actually read the Mueller report um, as opposed to have, uh, you know, watched uh, the spin uh, that um, Attorney General Barr put on it before it was released? The thing about a trial, if it's televised, is it is really um, a drama that people will watch. Most people will be glued to this and watch it in full. So uh, the comparison uh, with uh, the Mueller report is just not real. Sure. Let's talk about the drama of it if you're watching on television um, from the editorial board of The Wall Street Journal. Now, they put this in a partisan lens where they say Democrats won an O.J. Simpson trial, but they end this by saying the trials of Donald Trump are going to be traumatic enough without their various participants playing to the cameras and watching their reviewers uh, on nightly cable news. The consideration that uh, the, the, the observer, uh, observer effect, that these people being observed will change how they argue, that the attorneys will be playing to the camera, especially well, if, really their defendants, if their defendant, <laughs> if their client requires that. I mean, Donald Trump is the, well, the defendant in this case. Well, that's really laughable. Um, uh, what I recall from uh, the early days of uh, starting uh, the Court TV channel is that it was uh, uh, remarkably bipartisan. One of the biggest uh, supporters of cameras in the courtroom was the then speaker, uh, Mr. Gindrich. Um, it is bipartisan that people um, want to see how their justice system is operating. Um, you know, and as for lawyers playing to the cameras, you know, you had a defense lawyer on five different, uh, you know, Sunday shows yesterday. And often you have uh, the prosecutors, although uh, thankfully not uh, this Justice Department, but often you have, uh, you know, prosecutors who hold a press conference and they describe the evidence. Let's let people see everything as it plays out in court. 
I just got to wrap it. I got to ask you this one. Um, you detail in your op-ed what it would take to get the cameras in the courtroom. The U.S. Judicial Conference chaired by Chief Justice John Roberts would have to uh, vote in favor of suspension. Judicial Council of the D.C. Circuit would have to suspend its rule. Federal rules of uh, criminal procedure would have to change. What's the plausibility of this happening over the, the next several months or year before the trial? Well, well, there's going to be lots of time, it looks like, uh, before there is a trial. And the key really is uh, the chief justice. If the chief justice wants this to happen, it will happen. All right, Stephen Brill, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That was a really interesting conversation. Yeah, I mean, I would absolutely. I think we should all see as much of this as we can. But what will be the impact yeah. of it? And the fact that he said at the end, it's going to be up to John Roberts. Yeah. And your point about what in the last eight years tells you that people will believe it. Maybe watching things like the OJ trial. Sure. I don't know. But I mean, they watch the January 6th commission. They watch that uh, or the special committee. I feel like even more people would watch this. Yeah, yeah they would. Yeah. But did they believe it after they right. watched it? Yeah. yeah. It's really, really fascinating conversation. Okay, ahead, my favorite story of the morning. Simone Biles making a dazzling comeback to competitive gymnastics. Her incredible performance just totally perfect and where she's headed next plus thousands of beyonce fans forced to shelter in place at last night's concert outside of dc <laughs> what the stadium is now saying scary scene at a beyonce concert outside of washington dc last night concert goers at a renaissance world tour forced to shelter in place for hours after storms delayed the show, the stadium says a number of people were treated on site for heat exhaustion, given the very high temperatures, how packed people were in the concourse. One person was taken to the hospital for heat exhaustion. The show did go on. Beyonce's tour covered the $100,000 that it cost to keep D.C. metro stations open, running for an extra hour. Nice of her. The storm was one example of severe weather sweeping the nation. Meteorologist Derek Van Dam is with us with more. It wow. just doesn't, it doesn't stop. No, she also has a song called Cuff It that has the lyrics, baby, make it rain. And I guess apparently she did. So uh, pr pretty impressive to see uh, that she extended that favor to her fans as well, keeping the metro open that long. But this is all part of a larger storm system that has brought several tornadoes, but more or less a wind threat across the eastern half of the country. And today, this is what we're really concerned with. We have 120 million Americans under the threat of severe weather. So D.C., once again, Philadelphia, Baltimore, New York City, all the way to Atlanta. Damaging winds, very large hail, can't rule out a tornado, but let's focus in on that wind threat because the Storm Prediction Center has highlighted the Mid-Atlantic as our greatest threat. This is a 45% likelihood that anywhere within this particular location, you could pick a dot, and within 25-mile radius, you would have a wind damage event taking place within the next 12 hours. So that is what we're focusing in on, D.C. all the way to Philadelphia. Look at these storms just erupt on our forecast radar. This is really that time frame when you're driving home this evening, 4 to 6 p.m. And then again, the chance of tornadoes definitely in the pipeline here. We look towards the southeast as our greatest probability for that. Yeah. Poppy. All right, Derek, thank you. It's been such a wild summer in terms of this dangerous, really dangerous stormy weather. Appreciate it. A triumphant return for seven-time Olympic medalist, gymnast, Simone Biles winning her first competitive event since 2021 in front of a packed house at the Core Hydration Classic this weekend. She's now also qualified for the U.S. National Championships. CNN's Isabel Rosales joins us now live from Hoffman Estates in Illinois. It was amazing to watch, especially with the context 
that this is the first competition since Tokyo. Yeah, it, her performance is just mind-blowing, Victor. And it's clear that this is such a big moment, not only for Biles, but also for the world of gymnastics and her fans that are so inspired by her. I spoke with so many of them over the weekend just in awe of her performance, uh, saying it looks like she hadn't missed a day. And as you mentioned, Victor, she hasn't competed in two years. In front of a sold-out crowd, the GOAT making a dominating return to elite competitive gymnastics. Biles winning first place in the all-around, crushing on vault, floor, and balance beam. Not sure she could have done that any better, Terry. And nabbing third place on the uneven bars. It felt really good, especially after everything that's happened over the past year. On floor, performing this skill, known as the Biles. And on vault, nailing the Yurchenko double pipe. Something no female athlete has ever done before in competition. Biles reacting with a fist bump and her signature smile. Everyone that was cheering made posters and all of that in the crowd. Like, it just made my heart melt that they still believe in me. And I got back out here and I did what I was training. So I'm very happy with the result. Biles hasn't competed since the Tokyo Games two years ago, shocking the world when she withdrew from events after suffering from the twisties, a spatial and mental block where athletes are unable to keep track of their position in midair. I say um, put mental health first because if you don't, then you're not going to enjoy your sport. Fellow competitors describe it to CNN as debilitating. Once you get it, it's um, just really hard to like, get over and it takes a really huge mental toll. You need to really know who you are so you can land and not get hurt. Biles then ultimately watering down her routine and still earning bronze on the balance beam. This time I'm doing it for me. I worked a lot on myself and I believe in myself a little bit more. It's just coming back out here and starting those first steps again. The athlete also revealing she'd been abused by Dr. Larry Nazar, testifying with fellow members of Team USA to the Senate Judiciary Committee. My name is Simone Biles and I am a gymnast. I am also a survivor of sexual abuse. Biles blooming as a role model for athlete mental health. From her littlest fans, what does your sign say? Welcome back, Simone. Stick it, girls. Nothing but pure support for the Olympians big return. Just never give up and keep keep being a great gymnast. And uh, with this win, Biles is now qualified to go to San Jose for the U.S. Nationals. And then in the fall are the World Championships. But the big question is, what about the Olympics 2024 in Paris? Simone says she is not ready to talk about that yet. But rather, she's taking it one step at a time. Poppy, Victor. We're all looking forward to it, though. One amazing step yes. at a time. What a joy to watch her shine. Isabel Rosales, thank you so much for that. Simone freaking Biles. <laughs> I love those. In our, <laughs> our next hour, we'll speak to three-time Olympian gymnast Dominique Dawes. So be with us for that. Vice President Kamala Harris stepping up. Her role in the 2024 presidential campaign and Republican candidates taking notice as well. That's ahead. Republicans are zeroing in on a 2024 target, and she's not even running for president. Vice President Kamala Harris. If we muff this one and, and Biden gets in again, 
Heck, you may end up with Kamala as president. If you vote for Joe Biden, you really are counting on a President Harris because the idea that he would make it until 86 years old is not um, is not something that I think is likely. If you think his act looks bad now, wait till he gets 83 and 84 and 85 and 86. And by the way, in case he doesn't, you get Kamala Harris. The 2024 hopefuls arguing a vote for President Biden is a vote for Vice President Harris, suggesting the 80-year-old president might not survive an entire second term. The strategy has the numbers to back it. Harris's approval rating trails behind Biden. 42% of people approve of how she's handling her job as vice president. Mark Gillespie, Jamal Simmons are back. Also with uh, CNN political reporter Daniel Strauss. Uh, Daniel, let me start with you because this is your reporting. And I, I wonder, though, why this, why now? I mean, it suggests that maybe an argument against the president may not be working. So they have to shift toward the vice president. Yeah, but it also does other thing. Number one, it highlights Biden's age. And number two, it does something that at a very base level voters respond to. And that's the unknown. We know what a Biden presidency would be like uh, in a Republican primary. The idea or what we don't know about a, a potential Harris presidency is a pretty ominous idea. And that's why those are the two reasons that multiple candidates are attacking Harris in this way. You work remind people what you did with the for, with the vice president. It's amazing you come to me first. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, Mister Mister Former Comms Director. Yeah, I was a communications director until January. Yeah. Um, listen, I think uh, this is a really complicated argument for Republicans to make, and it's a little bit um, silly. It's a bank shot, right? You got to hit Kamala Harris in order to go after Joe Biden, and that means you've got to ask voters to do two things at the same time. And it just seems to me like there's a simpler argument. Either you think Joe Biden should be president or you don't think Joe Biden should be president. To go after the vice president, I think, is, um, is a little bit more complicated. And voters don't usually make strategic vo voting sure. decisions. They vote for the person they want in the top Fair. job. But I think Daniel reporting is great. The New York Times piece this weekend is really fascinating where it calls her a one woman. This is quoting <laughs> a one woman rapid response operation. Yeah. And it says that sh sh her going in the offense, like we've seen in Florida on abortion a number of times on the curriculum change, um, is a notable shift. Does she, is this where she is really in her comfort zone? Does she want this? Um, listen, when voter, people first came nationally to know Kamala Harris when she was prosecuting people on the Judiciary Committee yeah. going after um, folks, when she, when she went after Joe Biden on the debate stage in those early uh, primary debates. And so I think her prosecuting her opponents, prosecuting the case against her opponents, is her sweet spot in terms of her public presentation. Mm -hmm. So they should keep doing it. This is a woman who's got the intellect, she's got the stamina, toughness, and also the instinct to make sure all Americans are included in the American enterprise. The question on the other side is, are they only going to talk about Donald Trump in 2020? And if you're having a conversation between President Biden and Vice President Harris about the economy improving, inflation going down, protecting a woman's right to reproductive choice, and making slavery, uh, <laughs> talking about the perils of slavery and our, our unison around that, um, if you're having that conversation, you're actually in a much better place than people who are arguing about whether or not Donald Trump committed crimes in 2020. Mara, I want to get you on this, and then I want to move on to something uh, uh, that just uh, we're learning about. Um, do people really vote, you think, that, uh, on the vice president, the sitting vice president? This is a potent argument. Maybe um, in 2008, Sarah Palin, as a candidate, shifted some votes. They but use that same wording. Yeah. If not him, then you yeah, get her. Then you get her. Uh, a heartbeat away, as we know. But do you think this is a potent argument? I don't think that 
the GOP is wrong for doing it. Because again, age is a factor here. We've been talking about it for both for uh, President Biden and for former President Trump. And Kamala Harris is going to be a deterrent for Republican voters, moderate voters, and possibly independents. So it's not a bad strategy for the GOP to be going after her in that way, quite frankly. Ron DeSantis, let's listen. He just did this interview with NBC. Uh, the interviewer, Dasha Burns, did a great job of getting him to directly answer a key question about who won the election. Here it is. Yes or no, did Donald Trump lose the 2020 election? Whoever puts their hand on the Bible on January 20th every four years uh, is the winner. Okay, but respectfully, you did not sure. clearly answer that question. And if you can't give a yes or no because on whether or not Trump lost, then how of can course, you? No, of, of course he lost. There's also a weird echo. Uh, Trump lost the 2020 echo. election. Um, of course, okay. I was the president. Ron DeSantis is changing his tune. He's changing who he does interviews with, and he's changing how he answers questions. What's well, going on? His campaign is struggling, so he has to do something different, right? But this is also a good sign. I'm, I'm for this. Seeing Pence speak out about uh, the former vice president, speaking out against the former president and what happened on January 6th, setting his record straight. And again, just having Ron DeSantis speak out against what Donald Trump has been doing, his childish attacks. They all, the GOP candidates that are vying for the 2024 spot, need to be going after what Trump has done uh, because they can't run in his lane. They have to separate themselves. So, Daniel, he has now acknowledged the truth that Donald Trump lost the 2020 election. What does this get him? I mean, he's far behind the, the former president in state and national polls. What does he earn now with this acknowledgement? I mean, likely it keeps him in the hunt for some of these Trump voters. Notice how he responded to that question. He did not give a yes or no answer. He gave a very sort of opaque hand on the Bible on the 20th, that's who the president is. So if you clip that, it's not him saying Trump lost the election, which could enrage both the former president himself and his voters. It really shows in the end that DeSantis's bet is that he can win over the most hardcore Trump voters, which pollsters have told me in the past are just unlikely to move from Trump under any circumstances. He eventually got to the, of course, uh, the former president lost. Uh, we'll see where he goes uh, after that. Daniel, can Jamal, I get in real quick here? Yeah. Real we go, quick, real quick before we go, I just want to know why Ron DeSantis is going to debate uh, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom is not running for president. This is a silly campaign tactic, what the kids might call thirsty online, right? <laughs> He's just trying to get some attention. Gavin Newsom is a very distinguished person. He's a governor. He's also kind of a political heckler in this particular environment. He should be fighting the guy on the stage, not fighting somebody in the stands. We'll see if it actually happens. I know they've been going back and forth over parameters and rules, but we'll see if it actually. Happens. It's silly. Yeah. <laughs> Daniel Jamal. Mark. Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> Thank you all. One of Lake Tahoe's biggest thieves in custody, and it's not a human, it's a bear. Blamed for more than 20 home break-ins where she and her cubs are now heading. Plus, a rare walrus calf rescued hmm. after wandering alone is now under, doesn't this sound good? 24-7 cuddle care. Hmm. That story ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So someone is wanted for breaking into more than 20 homes in California, and they've been captured. But here's the twist. It's a 500-pound black mama bear known as Hank the Tank. California fish and wildlife biologists say they're relocating her from the Lake Tahoe area. 
to a sanctuary in Colorado because they say she poses significant risk to the area. Obviously, after all these break-ins, there are several bears in the area known as Hank the Tank, but the wildlife officials have linked her specific DNA to at least 21 break-ins. They say she has even brought her cubs, her kids, alongside on some of these escapades. So now they're planning to relocate her and three of her cubs to this California Rescue Center where they hope eventually she'll be able to be rehabilitated and return to the wild. Jeff Corwin joins us now. He's a wildlife and conservationist expert and host of Wildlife Nation. Jeff, good morning to you. Obviously, that can be super dangerous if there are people inside of wherever she's breaking into. Are you surprised that after 21 break-ins, they think she can be rehabilitated and put back in the wild? She clearly knows what she's doing. Um, I can almost imagine her lowering from a ceiling with like all these lasers around her <laughs> for trying to negotiate to where the food is. But seriously, this is basically an animal taking advantage of an opportunity. Mm. Bears are incredibly intelligent, emotional, adaptive animals. So why is this bear doing this? There's usually one big reason, and that is because a bear is displaced. It can be displaced because of a loss of habitat. It can be displaced because it's no longer dominant and it's being, it's experiencing um, a little competition from other bears in the environment. But also, it's taking advantage of low-hanging fruit resources. So clearly, this bear has learned that on the other side of this obstacle, your screen porch, your door, your window, is a nice, fresh blueberry pie, you know, cooling on the windowsill, or the refrigerator has a has some sandwiches in there. And it's learned that, and it goes in there to get that resource to sustain itself and to sustain its cubs. Unfortunately, by doing this with learning this behavior, it puts itself in an incredibly vulnerable situation because the saying goes eventually for an animal like this, a fed bear becomes a dead bear. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, they've moved in, they've rescued her and her cubs. Hopefully they stay together and they get relocated, but it's very likely she will go right back to that mm. same resource again unless she finds a different opportunity. Yeah, I, I want to, on that, we just saw the video of Hank with her, her cubs. Uh, you expect that they will relocate all of them to Colorado, not just the mama bear? I mean, it would be kind of sad if they left the cubs yeah. behind. Well, I've, I've heard different things. I'm just hearing that from you. I had heard, I had thought they had separate, separated the babies from the, yeah. the mom and she got relocated. Yeah. And, and so already, if that is the case, you can see already there's been a disastrous result. Um, we had a bear in Massachusetts that was on the tip, uh, wandered on the tip of P-Town at the very end of Cape Cod. It somehow went through the Cape Cod Canal. They took that bear, they relocated it hundreds of miles away to Western Massachusetts. The next day, it was back at P-Town, Cape Cod. Oh, wow. So that's how adaptive and resourceful they are. Um, the truth is, this is all preventable. If you lock up and secure your food, most importantly, your garbage, mm -hmm. you, will, you will deter this bear and hopefully it will find other resources for survival and protect habitat, places got, for them to live. We got to talk about this baby walrus mm -hmm. because apparently it was found alone on the coast of Alaska. And the way that you rehabilitate walruses is through around the clock cuddle care, which is what they're going through at the Alaska Sea Life Center. Is that right? What is that? 
So, Poppy and Victor, this really warms my heart. And I was, my wife and I were talking about it last night. She says, oh, my gosh, look at you with that little uh, baby walrus cub and look at you as a brunette. You know, it was uh, <laughs> I have such incredible memories there. This is at the Alaska Sea Life Center. This Aww. is one of my favorite places in Alaska. These folks, they're the only place in that whole part of the world that can do this. So uh, walruses, unlike sea lions and unlike um, and unlike uh, uh, seals, they have a very quick adolescence, a, a quick childhood. My dogs are coming. Quiet. It's okay. And, They're um, welcome. They're welcome to join. Yeah. <laughs> so they have to be constantly bottle fed, but within within a couple of weeks, they're released into the wild. Walruses are a completely different animal altogether. They rely on mama's love, that maternal, hands-on, tactile nurturing. And it's not something that will take a month or two months as you would with the seal or a sea lion. This could take upwards to two years. It's intensive care. It's TLC. It's science. It's veterinary medicine. Only these folks, the Alaska Sea Life Center in Alaska, Seward, such a special place. Guys, this place came out of the Valdez oil spill because they had to respond to all those animals that were orphaned wow. or injured. And this has been a life-saving resource. Hopefully, this beautiful little walrus will thrive and survive. Unfortunately, it's unlikely to be returned to the wild because it's so intensively hand-raised, they become conditioned to human beings. And that will be the next challenge, is to find a home for a creature that will weigh thousands of pounds. Oh. Jeff Corwin, thank you for warming our hearts a little bit this thank morning. You, My pleasure. This morning, street closures are set to begin outside the Fulton County Courthouse in Atlanta as security measures are put in place for a possible Trump indictment. Good Monday morning, everyone. It is 8 a.m. here on the East Coast, 5 a.m. out west. So happy to have Victor Blackwell with me this week. Good to be here. Good weekend. Yeah, very good weekend. Good, yeah. good, good. We have a lot to get to. This breaking overnight helicopters collide while fighting wildfires in California. Three people killed, including a fire chief. An investigation now underway. Plus thousands of Beyonce concert goers forced to take shelter as severe storms swept through D.C. How much her tour spent to keep Metro trains running. And Simone Biles is back, blowing away the competition after a two-year hiatus. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. This is where we begin this morning. Donald Trump just hours away from a crucial deadline in the 2020 election interference case. A federal judge has ordered him to respond to special counsel Jack Smith's request for a protective order by 5 o'clock today. Smith is trying to block Trump from disclosing evidence and making public comments that could intimidate witnesses or undermine the case. At the same time, we're keeping a close eye on the Fulton County Courthouse in Atlanta, where Trump is facing another potential indictment for trying to overturn the election. This morning, the sheriff's office closed streets outside the courthouse where a grand jury is considering charges. Let's bring in CNN Justice Correspondent Jessica Schneider. So Trump's team is vowing to oppose the protective order in the federal case, right? 
Yeah, that's right. And they're expected to oppose it in that filing by five o'clock tonight. It will be the first in a long list of fights that Trump's lawyers are preparing for. The former president and his attorney over the weekend saying that they'll ask the judge to step aside from the case. They claim she can't be impartial. They're also planning to ask for a change of venue to move this case outside of Washington, D.C. And this is all as both sides will start to make their case for how soon a trial should start. Former President Donald Trump and his legal team going on offense this weekend after Trump pleaded not guilty to four charges alleging that he tried to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. The point is that we will not agree to keeping information that's not that's not sensitive from the press. Trump's lawyer says his legal team plans to oppose a protective order requested by prosecutors that would put some restrictions on what Trump and his team can do with evidence shared with them. Federal prosecutors arguing limits need to be imposed on Trump, citing his previous public statements about witnesses, judges and lawyers in the case. And in the filing attached a truth social post of Trump's where he warns, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. Trump rebuking the concerns of federal prosecutors, continuing to lash out on social media at the case and the judge over the weekend, claiming he cannot get a fair trial in Washington, D.C. Trump writes that he plans to ask Judge Tanya Chutkin, who is presiding over the case, to recuse herself and further claiming he will also request a change of venue for the trial. One of Trump's rivals for the Republican nomination for president disagrees. I believe jurors can be fair. I believe in the American people and I believe in the fact that jurors will listen fairly and impartially. Despite his legal troubles mounting, Trump hit the campaign trail this weekend visiting South Carolina, where he again criticized his latest indictment and special counsel Jack Smith. He's a deranged human being. You take a look at that face, you say, that guy is a sick man. There's something wrong with him. A Trump campaign advisor tells CNN Trump has no plans to change his rhetoric. The former president also took aim at his former vice president, Mike Pence, disputing the claims in the indictment that he pressured him to reject the election results. Trump's attorney, John Loro, says that Trump was merely asking the vice president to act. What President Trump did not do is direct Vice President Pence to do anything. He asked him in an aspirational way. Asking is covered by the First Amendment. Pence confirming the claims in the indictment and says he has no plans to testify, but will, quote, comply with the law. Frankly, the day before January 6th, if memory serves, they they came back, as lawyers did, and said, we want you to reject votes outright. This this. They were asking me to overturn the election. I had no right to overturn the election. Uh, I know we did our duty that day. So this week, we are expecting a flurry of filings, a flurry of court fights, all before the next court date in this 2020 election case. That court date is set for August 28th. Now, as for Trump's claims that he'll try to get this case moved out of Washington, D.C., it's interesting to note here that about three dozen January 6th defendants, they've already tried to move their cases, and no judge, even those appointed by Donald Trump, have ever agreed. So Poppy and Victor, there could be a long and unlikely legal fight ahead for Trump's legal team. Jessica Schneider, thank you for all that reporting this morning, starting us off. Joining us now, politics reporter at Semaphore, Shelby Talcott, and John Avalon is back with us. And that's the point, John, right? No other defendant has gotten that change of venue. It's delay. That's the point. Of course it's delay, because that's what Donald Trump does. He projects, he deflects, and he tries to delay when it comes to court cases. But this is an incident that happened definitively in Washington, D.C. When he was president, 
living in Washington, D.C. So if the other, you know, three dozen folks haven't had luck in changing the venue, Donald Trump had neither. What do you make of what we heard from Mike Pence over the weekend uh, on the Sunday shows talking to Dana, et cetera, but then also Trump's lawyer saying, like, Mike Pence is going to be our best defense witness. Yeah, I noticed that also. I think that's really interesting. Um, and I'm curious why they're so confident, I guess, in why he would be their best Yeah, I think we, um, let's defense. play it to yeah. get sort of, this is what he said on CBS. The reason why Vice President Pence will be so important to the defense is, is the following. Number one, he agrees that John Eastman, who gave legal advice to President Trump, was an esteemed legal scholar. Number two, he agrees that there were election irregularities, fraud, unlawful actions at the state level. All of that will, will eviscerate any allegation of criminal intent on the part of President Trump. Yeah, I, I mean, I... I almost wonder if he's overselling Mike Pence's testimony because what we're hearing from Mike Pence out on the campaign trail is very different. And in fact, in recent weeks, as this particular indictment has heated up, Mike Pence has really opened the floodgates into how he actually feels on, on the situation. So I'm, I'm not convinced that that's going to be the defense that Trump's team thinks it is. Yeah, it's bluster. I mean, and, and I mean, to, to that point, when Dana interviewed Mike Pence, he completely demolished the argument that yeah. you know, Trump's lawyer was trying to set up, saying I was specifically asked. You know, this was not a request. This was not an ask. This was a demand. And not a pause. I wasn't asked no, for a pause. That's right. So, so you know, this is this is just bluster on the part of Trump's team, and and you know that that's to be expected because it's channeling the candidate. But although Pence is becoming more aggressive in the, his language about the former president's actions mm -hmm. uh, ahead of January sixth. Dana asked him specifically, can you say you won't vote for him if he's the nominee? And he wouldn't say, no, I'm not going to vote for him. Now, maybe that's, well, I'm going to be the, the nominee of yeah. the party, but why can't you just draw that line? That line would seem to be fundamental, right? If someone's been indicted or tried to overturn an election in the United States of America, if that's not a deal breaker, what is? But we also all understand that they're trying to win a Republican nomination. Trump is still popular. 37% of Republicans would support him no matter what. And all these candidates are trying to chip away at that. The, the thing I'd say, taking a big step back, because yeah. what's pro, what, what has provoked a lot of this is this tweet, you know, this uh, true social he put out saying, you know, you come after me, I'll come after you. And the question is, why isn't that just free speech? Well, I think we've seen a long pattern of Donald Trump trying to intimidate people mm -hmm. in Congress, rallying his supporters to attack them, you know, on, on social media in a way that has had a restraining effect. So, so I think, you know, while every partner is entitled to protection under the First Amendment, you also need to take in the context of this particular individual and the way he has threatened people who threatened to cross him. And it's worked with a lot of Republican candidates, too many. But I think you're starting to see that aperture open. People starting to have the courage of their convictions to speak out and call it out. Let's play. I, I want to talk about what happened with Mitch McConnell over the weekend. Yeah. So he was booed at home. This is a political gathering in his state. Here's what happened. Take police. saying uh, you lost the Senate, retire, and ditch Mitch. This follows him freezing at the podium um, about a week ago for like t over 20 seconds. There are concerns about his health. But is this deeper than his health and voter concerns on that? Because that's not what they were saying. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it is a little bit deeper. I also think it goes to uh, back to what you were just saying about Trump and how his rhetoric 
regarding anything, including certain politicians, has an effect on the Republican Party as a whole. And Mitch McConnell is, is one of those people who he, he's gone after in the past. And so I think, A, it's deeper than that. But I also think from the perspective of health concerns, there is a broader frustration within both sides of the party, quite frankly, voters across the country about aging an aged leadership. Um, and, and it's not just McConnell. It's Trump included. When I'm on the ground, that's one of the concerns. It's Joe Biden. It's age. Fine, it's, it, it's age as a, as a broad issue. And yeah. so I think that's really come to the forefront more and more in the past few months. But, but that was, there, that's, that's absolutely correct. There is a gerontocracy in the country that people are getting frustrated at and concerns about McConnell's health, that said. But that hostility, that lack of civility, yeah. that cruelty yes. in shouting him down. I felt bad what, yes. for him watching him there, yes. just as a human, all politics yeah. aside. And we are losing sight of that basic decency and kindness yes. in this environment. Yeah, it could be counterproductive for the people yes. who are trying to uh, heckle them there. Yes. Uh, John, Shelby, thank you. Thank you. So we told you uh, earlier in the program, at least three people we know this morning have died after two helicopters collided in Southern California. Cal Fire officials say the two aircraft were responding to a wildfire in Riverside County that's just east of Los Angeles. One of the choppers landed safely, the other did not. Unfortunately, the second helicopter crashed and tragically all three members perished, uh, which included one Cal Fire division chief, one Cal Fire fire captain, and one contract pilot. Our Camilla Bernal is following all of this from Los Angeles. It's tragic, and it's such a reminder of these. They really are heroes that go on the front lines of these wildfires up in the air and on the ground. They really are. Poppy and Victor, good morning. And unfortunately, these are the first three deaths of the California 2023 fire season. Here's what happened. Cal Fire saying that around 6 p.m. on Sunday, they were battling the Broadway fire. They had six helicopters up in the air. This was a fire that started in a structure and then spread to the vegetation. So it became a wildland fire. It was about three acres big. They're fighting this fire, making progress. And two of the helicopters crash. As you guys mentioned, there was one helicopter that landed safely. That was an observer helicopter with two people on board. The other one was a helicopter that throws uh, the retardant and the water drops. And that helicopter had three people inside. It was the captain, the division chief, and also the pilot. Cal Fire saying these were three husbands, three fathers, three friends. They're mourning their loss and saying that it was tragic, but are thankful that that second helicopter was able to land safely. Poppy, Victor. Camilla Bernal, we appreciated our thoughts with their kids, with their wives, everything this morning. Thank you. A former Trump White House staffer and the wife of former Congressman Adam Kinzinger speaking now for the first time about the hateful rhetoric and threats her family received during a January 6th House investigation. Sophia Kinzinger joins us live next. And later, Hollywood's still really at a standstill as the first step toward negotiations falls through. How long are these strikes going to last? Fran Drescher with us to discuss. You can say right here that you will rule out voting for Donald Trump again for president. <laughs> Dan, I will tell you, I, I, I don't think we'll have to make that decision. Uh, I'm, what if you I'm do? confident I'll be able to support the Republican nominee, especially if it's me. 
That's Mike Pence not directly answering Dana's question, saying whether he would support Trump if he is the eventual Republican nominee. The former vice president now playing a central role in Trump's indictment. While Pence has criticized his former boss's actions on January 6th, he told CNN last month that he's not yet convinced those actions were criminal. Pence's life was put at risk on January 6th. He said this earlier about Trump, quote, his reckless words endangered my family. Trump's rhetoric about overturning the 2020 election has put others in danger, too, including the family of my next guest, who is speaking out for the first time. Sophia Kinzinger worked in the Trump White House, including directly for then-Vice President Mike Pence as his director of strategic media. She's also married to Adam Kinzinger, the former Republican congressman and now a CNN senior political commentator. Last year, Congressman Kinzinger revealed some of the threats his family had faced over his role on the January 6th committee. I guess I can't say a whole lot more other than I hope you naturally die as quickly as possible, you piece of You backstabbing Go against Trump, y'all know y'all sitting up there lying like a dog. Hey, you little Gonna come protest in front of your house this weekend. You know who your family is, and we're gonna get you, get real. Wow. Sophia Kinzinger joins me now. Thank you very much for, for speaking out. I can't imagine those threats coming to my family. I'm sorry that you have had to endure all of this. Tell me why you wanted to speak out now. Hi, Poppy. And yeah, it's not easy to hear those. Um, the last two years have not been easy, Poppy. I mean, we've endured with so much but we've never questioned or doubted what we were doing. I mean, the, the truth was far more important. Um, we truly believe that the American people needed to know what happened on January 6th and prior. Um, and yes, it's very personal. This indictment is very personal to us. Uh, and like you mentioned, I worked for Mike Pence. Uh, we know a lot of these people that are running for president right now in, in the Republican party. And it's, Yes, it's, there's a lot of emotions for us to tide when we see how the truth is still not completely out. You have a one and a half year old child. And, and, and for, any, yeah. for any parent, anyone can imagine just how immense those threats are if they come just toward you. But when they come toward your family, you have talked mm -hmm. about the fact that you and you've tweeted, you tweeted Heavenly Father may the Republican Party wake up because this is not the party you recognize. It's not, Poppy. And listen, there's, I, I guess the public gets to see Adam on camera uh, doing his role as a politician, as a public figure. Uh, but we have personal lives, too. I mean, there was a lot happening in our lives when January 6th happened. I mean, we were newlyweds. Uh, I was pregnant most of 2021. Uh, and then Christian was born in 2022 when the committees were, were basically getting ready for the hearings. I have this vivid memories of being in the nursery with Christian and in the background having all these testimonies uh, um, playing because Adam was online listening to the testimonies, asking questions. So mm -hmm. this is like our past two years, this was our, our lives was dedicated to this. And it's extremely personal, especially when we hear like Vice President Pence 
saying that the, the committee was a partisan witch hunt. Um, yeah, it, 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 it is personal and you, the lies are still there. We still feel obligation to speak truth to them. Do you recognize that person, that Mike Pence? I mean, you worked for him as a director of you know, strategic mm -hmm. media operations. And, and yet you, it sort of seems like you can't believe some of the things you hear him say about the work that your husband mm -hmm. did in that committee in general. Listen, so I worked in, in campaigns. I know what it takes to strategically draft talking points because you're trying to pursue voters. But listen, we're not talking about policies here. Mm -hmm. We're talking about our democracy. Yeah. We're talking about a democracy, a man that did everything he could to steal an American election, the election from the American people. And Mike Pence, he knows us. He knows very well, Adam. He knows me. We're not Democrats, and we would definitely not allow Democrats to use us political pawns. Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger really exposed the truth when he was quiet. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I honestly, I would like to know what he thinks about Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney. Is he grateful for what they did? Because he's confirming absolutely everything that he's now brave enough to come, come up to the public and explain. So, yes, it is personal, Poppy. Yeah, I think that's a fair and important question, actually, to ask the, the former vice president. Mm -hmm. um, given what you just said about silence uh, of Vice President Mike Pence for a time being, he has now become more outspoken, as you know, saying what Trump did then mm -hmm. was wrong, was wrong then, it was wrong now, et cetera. But I thought that Dana Bash, my colleague and friend, asked him a really good question yesterday when she said, do you wish you had spoken out sooner? that you'd been more vocal that Trump was wrong on the election then, because perhaps that would have prevented him from really solidifying this huge lead as the GOP frontrunner to be the president again. And I'll just ask you the same question. Do you wish that former vice president had spoken out sooner on that? Absolutely. And not because I'm Adam's wife and what we had to endure, but as an American, I, I, he was our number two, and we deserved his truth on January 7th of 2021. He, he now makes it sound like he's been out there speaking about this a long time. Listen, we, we don't forget. He was absent for a long time. And this is where, I, again, it becomes personal because there were two that were willing to fight for that truth, his truth. The narrative out of the committee was that he acted heroically. Like, I would like to know if he preferred that Jim Jordan was in the committee. Would that be, would have been the narrative? I don't know. So, so yes, it, it's mm. very unfair and very disappointing. So you, it sounds like you're supportive of the actions that he took to uphold democracy, right, on the 6th of January. But you yeah. wanted to yeah. hear it. You wanted to hear the truth and those words spoken loudly right away. Well, our democracy was at stake, Poppy. This yeah. is where I like, we're not, we're not talking about a policy that he went against the president. No, we're talking about democracy and a right mm -hmm. to vote. I mean, both parties should be standing together saying when it comes to democracy, we cross the line. Like our democracy is untouchable. Mm -hmm. The fact that it, we're still playing with talking points and make this like a partisan thing when it's not like shame on them. Yeah. All, all of this exposes how delicate a democracy, you know, this is. Um, Sophia Kinzinger, I really Absolutely. I know it's not easy to come out and, and speak, especially when you're not even working in the you know public sector anymore. I appreciate <laughs> I'm sorry what your family's endured. And I really think um, it's valuable for our viewers to hear from you. So thank you. Thank you, Poppy. Thank you. Yeah. 
such an important conversation. When you hear those voicemails that, uh, that she received. I know. Threatening her family. And that's just a few of so yeah. many. Uh, went on for some time. Uh, a home in Alaska collapses into the river after an unprecedented flooding event. We'll show you the shocking video. Plus thousands of Beyonce fans forced to shelter in place last night at a concert right outside of Washington, D.C. Our very own Abby Phillip was there. She's going to join us next with what it was like. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, we have dramatic video that shows a house as it collapses and falls into a flooded river in Alaska. Watch this. Oh, there it goes, there it goes. So this two-story home fell into the swollen Mendenhall River near the capital of Juneau. Officials say a glacial break caused the waters to rise. And then the situation uh, we know is still unstable. At least two homes have been destroyed. And the people there are being advised to, of course, stay away from the riverbanks. Turns out not even Queen Bee herself is safe from the extreme weather plaguing the United States. Folks at the Renaissance concert, Beyonce there on your screen, her world tour stop in Washington, D.C. last night had to shelter in place for hours as the storm delayed the show. The stadium says a number of people were treated on site for heat exhaustion, given the high temperatures and how packed people were in the concourse. One person was taken to the hospital. Her performance was then paused as rain swept through FedEx Field. Her tour did cover the $100,000 it cost to keep the D.C. Metro running for an extra hour after the show. And our friend and CNN anchor Abby Phillip was there at the show, and she joins us now on the phone. This is really dangerous. People were treated for heat exhaustion, super crowded. Abby, uh, we're looking at these photos. What was it like to actually be there? Yeah, hey, guys, good morning. It, it was very uncomfortable. I mean, it was pouring rain for a while and there was lightning in the air, so they didn't want to let anyone in. And obviously the concert wasn't going to start, but it was really chaotic. And I think that was kind of the experience that I and so many other people had, the chaos and the crowd and the rain and the heat, you know, someone not far from me fainted and you know, paramedics rushed over. There was a little girl in front of me and the crowd was, everyone was so frustrated after all these hours of waiting and the confusion, the crowd was just kind of pushing forward and a little girl was in front of me. And I think mm. we were all just trying to kind of create like a, a zone around her so that people didn't really push her to the ground. So, I mean, it was one of those moments where it was a great concert, but that experience was a little bit scary. I mean, uh, the weather just causing not only delays, but um, a lot of confusion at the venue, which was frustrating for me personally. And I'm here talking to you guys, but because I, I just think it's, it's so important for these concerts to be as safe as possible for all the people who and the fans who want to come out and, and do it safely. As a, an attendee there, did this feel like a plan that had gone awry or that there was no plan? It kind of felt like there was no plan. I have to be honest. I mean, uh, the, the people working there were confused. Hmm. <laughs> the fans hmm. were confused. No one seemed to really know what the plan should be. Um, and the crowds were so large and people were being told contradictory things. It's to me like a rain plan should be kind of standard for these venues in terms of understanding what they want people to do. And it, it 
that was not the experience that I and a lot of other people that I talked to who were there last night had um, at that venue. And again, I mean, it's a safety thing. I mean, obviously, people waited in the rain. And and if you're a Beyonce fan, you're willing to wait in the rain. But (sighs) when it started to get dangerous, I think that's when people, you know, started to get really frustrated. Yeah, of course. Well, I'm glad you're safe. I, I um I hope the show was great. Yeah, it was it was awesome. Okay. I mean, it's it's Beyonce. So <laughs> Ooh, look at you, Abby. Uh-oh. There's Uh-oh. hot Abby alert. We're showing your picture. She an amazing show. It was an amazing show. And oh. she was just fantastic. Her dancers were amazing. She sang in the rain, she danced in the rain. <laughs> Uh, we danced in the rain. Uh, we had a great time. And because everybody waited for so long, the energy was extraordinary yeah. in the stadium. So I'm, 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 I'm willing to withstand it all for Beyonce. Abby said, y'all going to get this Renaissance fit. I didn't put all this time into this. Y'all going to see this outfit after the rain. Abby, Phillip, good to talk to you early this morning. Thanks for sharing Great it with us. Thank you, guys. Thanks, right. This is, have you planned yours outfit for this weekend yet? I'm still thinking through shoes, but mm-hmm. I can't really get into that. The Hollywood strike is grinding on. When is it going to end? The Writers Guild says recent talks with studios were, quote, insulting. Actress and president of the Screen Actors Guild, Fran Drescher, joins us live next. This morning, Hollywood remains on hold. Writers and studios failing to reach an agreement Friday on resuming negotiations. The meeting sought by the studios was seen as the first potential sign of a thaw between the two sides. And there are no talks planned yet with SAG-AFTRA, which represents 160,000 actors. They went on strike last month. The actors' union has historically been more willing to negotiate. But according to this New York Times reporting, studios have been reconsidering their strategy. The primary reason, Fran Drescher. The Times reports, quote, when Fran Drescher took a hard line as its leader, executives shifted their focus to the other striking guild. Drescher, former star of the 1990s sitcom The Nanny, and by the way, creator and executive producer, has sharply criticized studio executives, calling them greed-driven and disrespectful people. That's a quote. While we may think of Hollywood actors as high-paid celebrities, some of them are, but the reality is many of them are not. The average salary This is the average, $65,000, according to one analysis of labor data. On Thursday, Drescher visited picketers right here in New York, urged them to keep up their morale. And it's a win it. And our new hashtag is yield to our deal. Spokesman for the studios, I should note, uh, says we remain committed to finding a path to mutually beneficial deals with both unions. Joining us now in studio, Fran Drescher, president of SAGRAFTER. Good morning. Good morning. How are you both? Thank you. No progress? Oh, no. No, they're not speaking to us. So I don't know what that comment was that they want to seek a deal when you have to be able to negotiate and talk to the opposition to make a deal. What do you make of the characterization that Poppy just read uh, in the New York Times reporting that you are the reason that they've shifted from negotiating with SAG-AFTRA to focusing on the, the writer strike in WGA? I can't really comment on that. I mean, I'm, I actually feel like this is an inflection point. This is not something that will be resolved with incremental changes. This is a holistic 
shift in contract that must occur because the business model has been changed so dramatically, and they have to understand that that's what it's going to take. And I just want to correct, uh, you know, when we say that average is 65,000, that actually probably includes all the... um, It does, the highest paid. Yes, Mm -hmm. very highest paid. So what would you say is most actors make what? I can tell you that 86% of our members cannot meet the $26,500 a year threshold to get their medical benefits. That's 86% cannot make $26,500. In the real world, that's a part-time job. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's, what we're, that's who we're fighting for, workers. 86% of the union's 160,000 uh, make less than that 26.5. You told uh, NBC that, that you all are, are prepared for this to go for six months. At least. But if they don't make, if 86% of the members make less than 26.5, how can they last for six months? Well, um, first of all, they're the ones that wanted it. We had unprecedented uh, strike authorization vote of 97.91%. So they're at the breaking point. There it's like, you know, we, this is do or die. So that's their attitude. That's why we're also supporting interim agreements so that the um, journeyman performer and crew can find work. And the longer that they can sustain their rents and pay for food on the table, the more we can hold firm on our resolve. Okay, I want to dig into that a little bit more because I had thought that all, all actors that were part of the union were striking, but there are some that are allowed to continue on with their work. Some productions are still going on with some big names like Anne Hathaway, Kevin Costner, Mel Gibson. Um, Sarah Silverman took big issue, takes big issue with this. I want to play what she said and get your thoughts on the other side. Here she is. The strike is supposed to be, especially when SAG joined the strike, it's, it's movie stars aren't making movies for you anymore. Now what are you going to do? Well, they're making movies. What the... Is she wrong? Oh, yeah, she's wrong. And I talked to her about it, and she understands that she was... Uninformed, and I think that oh, from she did. Wait, union she leaders took that back to you yes. privately. Yes, and she also publicly uh, did as well. Um, I think that as leadership, we needed to get our communication uh, put forward um, in a better way, so that people wouldn't start talking amongst themselves without the correct information. But this is a very smart and strategic plan so that we can get journeyman performers and crew working. Also, it shows that we as a union are being equitable and fair in what our and what our proposals are, because there are independents that are willing to do it. They're completely vetted. They have no association with the AMPTP. And if down the road they decide that they can take this and try and do it, the AMPTP essentially would be agreeing to exactly what they refuse to agree to. So it's everything that we were at the table with 
these independents must agree to. Mm. So anybody that's going back to work right now is actually making more money than they've ever made. And it's showing, it's proving that we all we want is a fair deal. The AMPTP, uh, that is the Alliance of Motion Picture Television Producers, they say um, that what they've offered is worth more than a billion dollars in wage increases, improvements on residuals, and health care contributions over three years. Is there a way to, to quantify, put a dollar amount on how far apart you are, if that number is accurate, if that billion dollar um, is the, the right number they put on their, their deal? Well, let me put it into perspective for you. Uh, they want to offer us, their like bottom line was a 5% increase on the base pay of performers. That in real money would be less than what we were making in 2020 because it doesn't catch us up to inflation. Mm. And they want us to accept a deal that in real money is less than what we made in 2020 and take us through 2026. I'm sorry, but that's unacceptable. And they have presented us with a business model that essentially squeezes us out of our residuals. Now, I don't know whether they thought, oh, goody, this business model is going to save us a lot of money on residuals, or they didn't think of us at all. But either way, it's a shameful stance to take as a company, especially when dealing with foundational contributors to their entire business. Sure. So many more questions. Please come back, okay? I, will. I mean, Thank maybe you. you'll get a resolution. Come back then. But if you also don't have one, come back. Four days in. Thanks so much. Yeah. The company that made it manageable to work from home, Zoom, <laughs> is now telling the employees, you got to come back to the office. What's Harry that? Enton is here with this morning's number and that dance. What does that memo read like? What is this dance? So I was. So Zoom made it possible for a lot of people to work from home, right? Well, now the company says its own employees have to get back into the office. <laughs> Zoom tells CNN in a statement that a structured hybrid approach is the most effective route for them. Plus, the White House is telling its cabinet secretaries to aggressively execute a return-to-work policy for federal employees. Joining us now with this morning's number, CNN senior data reporter Harry Enton. All right, what's the number? All right, this morning's number is... 5% because staff positions since June of 2022 have risen 5% at firms allowing remote or hybrid work. Well, it's up just 2.6% for those firms that allow only in-person. Of course, Victor, you were talking about the difference between, say, a hybrid or remote approach. And I want to note here, this is U.S. worker arrangements for full-time employees. Look, remote work only, it's up since pre-pandemic, but it's still just 15%. Hybrid is up to 28% here. But I also note, even though in-person only is down from 75 to 57 percent, that's still the majority of the folks are going full time into the office. Yeah. I assume employers sentiment about this and employees differs. Yeah, I would say it definitely <laughs> differs. So the average remote work per week, employers want 1.6 days that the uh, employees can be remote. Look at the workers hopes, though. Nearly a day higher at 2.3 days per week. So obviously workers want to be home more often than employers want them to be home. But why do they want remote work? The number one reason is they don't want to have to commute at 48%. Child care is easier at 14%. 
better able to focus at 13%, but it really is not having a commute. That's why people don't yeah, want to come in. Drive, the, the train could be a beast. Yes. Harry Anton, thanks. Thank, Thank you. Friend. All right. She's back. Simone Biles making a dazzling return to competitive gymnastics. How'd she do it, and where does she go from here? Three-time Olympian Dominique Dawes joins us next. After a two-year break, seven-time Olympic medalist Simone Biles is back. Over the weekend at the Core Hydration Classic in Illinois, the 26-year-old marked her return to competitive gymnastics in a winning fashion, finishing first in the all-around, the vault, the floor, and the balance beam. She placed third in the uneven bars. This was Biles' first competition since the 2021 Tokyo Olympic Games, where she withdrew from several competitions to protect her physical and mental health. And joining us now is Dominique Dawes. She is a three-time Olympian, member of the Magnificent Seven, the first American team to win gold in the Olympics. You'll never forget that in 1996. She joins us this, this morning. It is great to see you. And this is our favorite story of the day, week maybe, because she just was beaming. And not only did she send she such does. an important message about take care of yourself first and the rest will follow, but now she has showed us that. Very much so. And I love how the clip that you guys highlighted and started this off with was her celebrating her amazing performance on the vault. And I will say that's really what struck me as a 46-year-old mom of four kids. I want my kids to be confident. I want my kids to be happy. And I want them to be willing to celebrate their successes. And Simone Biles did just that. And that was something that, as you had mentioned, me being a part of the 1996 gold medal winning team we couldn't do that we were our, our joy was stolen from us from our coaches and so i love the fact that she's such a role model and showing how proud she is of her achievements yeah she sent the message that it is okay to take a break that it is okay to focus on your mental health um to perform at this level to come back after two years and to do what she did over the weekend what does that take it takes a lot of grit. It takes a lot of talent and a lot of hard work. And you are right that she took a break and she didn't quit though because while she spent some time during the last Olympic games on the sideline cheering on her teammates, then you can get back into the game. You don't just step away and the sideline, you can still step up and have your A-game performance. And I am amazed at what she's doing at 26 years old. I was 23 years old at my third Olympic Games, and she's going to be, what, maybe 27 at the Paris Olympic Games? She's not going to have a trouble getting there and possibly even winning at all. It's pretty impressive. You mentioned your coaches and the fact that they stole your joy after you guys had such a truly magnificent win. And, I mean, it just was such, like, a huge part of my childhood watching you guys shine like that. Is it, is, it, is it markedly different now? Are people like Simone speaking up, not only about mental health, but all she and her teammates testifying against what happened to them uh, as survivors of Larry Nassar, for example? Is it different now? 
it is changing. It's definitely changing. You have the likes of, you mentioned Simone Biles, you have Allie Reisman, Gabby Douglas, so many athletes that have spoken up and they are defending the sport of gymnastics and really taking back their control. Back in the, the older generation in the 90s, we were little robots and it was hard for us to be proud of ourselves because we were made to feel that we couldn't be proud of ourselves. And the fact that Simone is celebrating on a podium after she did an amazing double pike Yershenko vault, I think is you know a message to our young people that you need to be a proud of your hard work and your achievements. Mm. Uh, Simone is not committed to uh, competing in the Paris Olympics next year, but she says that things are, are going in the right direction. Um, do you expect she will be there? Uh, and any advice? Uh Yes, she's a competitor. We don't just show up and go through the motions. We have end results and goals that we want to accomplish. But again, Simone Biles is taking it probably one practice at a time, one competition at a time. I expect to see her at the 2024 Paris Olympic Games on that floor. And I bet you it's going to be a bit of a redemption opportunity for her because in 20. 21 in Tokyo. She didn't want to step away, but she did because of mental health reasons. This is her time to come back and shine and prove to everyone that she's capable of doing it all. And honestly, I don't want to put it out there, but do you even see a fourth Olympic Games with this young lady, 2028 20, in LA? I mean, she's that talented. She's that good. She won by five points, five points. Yeah. And what I love also about Simone is she's got a full life. She's a wife. She's a business owner. She's an entrepreneur. And she's loving every step of this uh, journey of hers. Yeah, I love that, too. Great point. Dominic Dawes, thank you so much. Great. Thank you. It is fantastic to see her, you know, on social media. You see the fuller Simone Biles You're life. so right. Yeah. You're so right. Uh, gymnastics. You can so. mean many things. Yes. Thanks, Victor. Good to start the week with see you. See you tomorrow. Uh, thanks for being with us. We'll see you right here tomorrow. See you in a new Central is now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.